from our colonized existence, disarticulated, without power, and in dispersion, from our situation of captivity, of our no people, salvation is recreation or it is nothing. That was a quote from Pedro Trigo, the author of the chapter Creation and the Material World in Mysterium Liberationis. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast. I'll be discussing a new author today, Pedro Trigo. He was born in the Rioja region of Spain in 1942. He joined the Society of Jesus at a young age and was missioned to Venezuela. He would later become a nationalized Venezuelan citizen. Trigo is a disciple of Gustavo Gutierrez, with whom he worked in Lima in 1973. He completed his doctorate in theology in 1980 at the Pontifical University of Comillas in Spain and has worked as a theologian in accompaniment of popular Christian movements. And his chapter in Mysterium Liberationis that I will cover in this episode is called Creation and the Material World. It's, in fact, the first chapter in the second volume of Sabrino and Air Korea's 1990 anthology. The chapter is long, and it really has so many great points that it's hard to choose on which ones to concentrate, so I've decided to take a bit of a different approach by simply limiting the text to the discussion of three crucial questions, the first of which is how to believe in a God of life in a situation marked by death. According to the CIA World Factbook, the country with the highest life expectancy is Monaco at 89.6 years. The United States is at 80.8. Cuba is not far behind at 79.9. Honduras is at 71.9. Somalia, 56.1. And Afghanistan has the lowest life expectancy at 54.1 years. The difference between the average lifespan in Monaco and in Afghanistan is 35.5 years. Death marks some places more than others, and in the end, death touches the life of each of us. So, we can repeat the question of the psalmist in chapter 88, verse 11. Is God your faithfulness announced from the grave, or your fidelity in the reign of death? God is the God of life. God is the creator. How are these ideas of God compatible with the reality of death, especially in places where death comes sooner than natural because of oppression? Can Latin American people affirm the sovereignty of the creator God if their experience is principally one of destruction? Further, We believe that God was not only active in the past and will be active in the future, but also that God is active in the present. Nonetheless, it can seem to us that God is looking at the suffering of the world right now and simply doing nothing. God seems to be allowing oppression here and now. Salvation will only come at the end when God vindicates victims and punishes oppressors. Yet, why would God put off into the future a problem that God could resolve now. 
Trigo offers the concept of historical creation to respond to these serious issues. God's work as creator is not simply at the beginning of time as portrayed in the first chapters of Genesis and at the end of time at the resurrection of the dead. God is a creator throughout all of history. It's the prophets that remind Israel of this fact in situations of oppression. The God of Ezekiel breathes new life into the dead bones, which prefigures not only the Christian belief of the resurrection of the body, but more immediately serves as a prophecy of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile, which God accomplishes within history. Like Ezekiel, the prophet Isaiah preaches a God who acts in time and space, who is at work in the present, in the midst of suffering. He writes in chapter 43, verse 19, Quote, you see that I am doing something new. It is already sprouting. Don't you see it? End quote. God is creating still. Do we perceive the stems emerging from the dust of the earth? Do we see God raising up what has been beat down? The prophetic tradition of the historically creative God is brought to fulfillment in Jesus. Trigo writes that, quote, the only absolute proof of the Christian faith in creation is the resurrection of Jesus, crucified by oppressors, end quote. So faith is, quote, only possible from this valley of tears and by surpassing it, end quote. We must resist the temptation to think that Jesus' resurrection is merely mythical and spiritual. On the contrary, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event. It happens in space, in time. It happens in a material body that eats, speaks, walks. The resurrection of Jesus in history tells us that God does not leave resurrection purely to the last judgment. God will raise us up on the last day, but God is also raising us up now. Trigo affirms, quote, Though relative, this life is loved by God for itself. End quote. This affirmation of faith is so important for Latin America. God is not indifferent to the suffering of the masses now. God is not totally absent. Rather, God is accomplishing the work of salvation, which is at the same time the work of creation. Trigo says here, as I read at the beginning of the episode, quote, from our colonized existence, disarticulated, without power, and in dispersion, from our situation of captivity, are no people. Salvation is recreation, or it is nothing, end quote. Salvation is another way of saying a new creation. God saves by recreating history, by molding the mud of history into a new, more just form, and by breathing life into it. Trigo declares, quote, This action of God is neither intramundane nor magic. It follows a historical process and can only be perceived in faith, end quote. What I think Trigo means here is that God is not working primarily in nature in the sense that the laws of nature are the means by which salvation comes. The laws of biology, chemistry, and physics are neutral. Chemicals can be means of killing or means of giving life. They do not save in themselves. Neither is God working primarily through magic. Indeed, God works miracles, yet God does not magically intervene to save whenever called upon. Where God is primarily at work is in human beings, 
whose freedom shapes the course of history. God made us in such a way that we can freely collaborate with his work of creation. We are co-workers, co-creators with God. We are creative creatures. What does it mean to be a human creature? Trigo proposes three intersecting levels in a quite fascinating response. First, he says, to live like creatures is to live, quote, in the face of God without God, end quote. This level is the fundamental level. God creates us, and in this sense, we are in the face of God. We can imagine God forming us from the earth, giving us life, and placing us right in front of God. We see each other face to face. That said, we are also without God. God constitutes us as not God, as a theist, as something different from God's self, as autonomous beings. Our existence is without God in the sense that God does not act as a causal force in history. Our reality is radically independent from God. We are finite and limited. We do not have the fullness of the divine attributes. We live and die, and God does not change the laws of nature to make it otherwise. We have to acknowledge these basic conditions and realities of our existence. Trigo claims that religious people, to their detriment and to the detriment of others, forget these fundamental truths and so seek for God in created things. We want God to be with us so much that we see God where God is not. God is not creation. God is not nature. God is not humanity. We should not ignore the level of in the face of God without God. Accepting this first level, embracing the reality of this first level, always remaining in this first level and never fully emancipating ourselves from it, we move to the second stage of with God. The God who made us different from God's self then invites us into personal dialogue. God addresses God's self to us, and the subject of this conversation is an invitation to cooperation. God says, My work of creation is not finished. It is an ongoing project. Will you work with me? If you work with me, you will be working for life, for life to be without end, for life to come to fulfillment, to flourishing, to happiness. If you do not work with me, you are free to do so. Yet in reality, this rejection will lead to death. I invite you to work with me, to choose love, to choose life. When we say yes to God's loving designs, Trigo declares in allusion to Irenaeus, it so happens that, quote, our hands become the hands of God, word and spirit. And so through our limited deeds, historical creation is produced, and God creates without breaking our worldly autonomy, end quote. When we say yes, giving our fiat like Mary, it is not that we become God, but rather that we become obedient to God. God is not dependent on us, but we are dependent on God. So it is and so it will be. Yet we can nonetheless be with God, and in being with God, our dependence is on a love that will not fail, on a love that wells up to eternal life. Accepting these first and second levels, we journey to the third, which Trigo calls in God. Those who see that they are not God, but are called into dialogue with God, who say yes to God's invitation proposed in the dialogue, who collaborate with God in the project of life, they come to see in faith that God's love is spilling into the entire universe. They come to see that we are God's guests in Trigo's language. We live in the heart of God. All creation lives in the heart of God. God gives God's self to God's love. 
which is the creation God has made, to be independent, yet also capable of freely receiving God's love. And I see here the image of a good parent of an adult child. Good parents see their adult children as created by them, but also autonomous of them. Yet good parents are not indifferent to their adult children. They love their adult children and invite them into a relationship of reciprocal love. Parents and children are not the same. Children are dependent on parents in a way that parents are not dependent on children. Nonetheless, the two can come to exist together in a relationship of reciprocal love and care. Those are the three stages in the face of God, without God, with God, and in God. Very real, I find, very clarifying. Let's now consider the second key question of this episode. How to live with God when it is demanded of us to bear the mark of the beast? That's the issue to be addressed now in the second part of today's show. We are called to life different from God, with God, and in God, yet these are not the only calls we receive. As St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus, might put it, the evil spirit also speaks to us. And in this world of suffering and oppression, the voice of the evil spirit is loud and enticing. It is not the still, soft voice of God. It is dominant and commandeering. It calls for a relationship of enslavement. It is not God's voice, whose mark is ever greater freedom. In a powerful paragraph, Trigo describes the toxic ideological horizon confronting Latin America. Though written more than 30 years ago, it continues to speak strongly, I find, to the present situation. He says, quote, Our horizon finds itself crossed by two great polarizations, north-south and west-east. From the social state of being, north is civilization, progress, enlightenment, light, and south is the equivalent to barbarism, backwardness, routine, darkness. Our reality as people remains defined as South, our destiny to become North, our tragedy not being able to become North in spite of so many sacrifices and because of so many deficiencies and sins. From the dominant ideology West is freedom, democracy, tolerance, an open world, and the primacy of the person whereas the East would mean totalitarianism, dictatorship, repression, a closed world, and the primacy of the party and the state. We would be West as an ideal, and more or less as institutional forms, but not as reality. Our ideal, day by day unaffordable because of our deficiencies and defects, would be to fully become Western. Our temptation, the one we would have to stigmatize, would consist in giving ear to the seductions of the East and to aspire to resolve our problems by the revolutionary short circuit that would bring us more evil than good. End quote. Submerged in this way of thinking, in this ideological milieu, and the material conditions associated with it, Latin America is destined to drown. There seems to be no way to win. How can Latin America replicate the European and North American models of liberal democracy whose relative success is built on the domination of Latin America itself? 
How can Latin America build a socialist alternative when coups, sanctions, and wars prevent even the slightest progressive steps? The failures of these options, fueled by the oppression of the global north, have often led Latin America into dictatorships. When the deck is stacked against liberalism and socialism, it is not hard to see that for many, the mano dura, the iron fist, appears to be the most viable path. Given that the thriving of Latin America is next to impossible under these circumstances, perhaps the best hermeneutic with which to interpret Latin America's path is, quote, conformity to the established order, end quote, and, quote, rebellion against the established order, end quote. When the rules of the game are unfair, it may be best not to play by the rules at all. Trigo salutes the bravery of those who, quote, deny to play the game, end quote, who, quote, accept the gospel, end quote, which transcends these narrow rules, and so, quote, change business or career or country many times, end quote, in search of a life plan that conforms more to the good news of Jesus Christ than to the established order, more to the reign of God than to the earthly city. He argues, quote, the security of a business or a job cannot come before the gospel. It may be there that future apostasies will come, end quote. So Christians have no homeland on earth in the present state of affairs. We must swear ultimate allegiance to the reign of God alone. All earthly kingdoms are partial, with some elements to embrace and others to resist. Trigo writes, quote, When one only adores God, the oppositions are reduced to the relativity of history, end quote. His statement is both incredibly freeing and incredibly challenging. Freeing because we do not have to accept the narrow horizons fabricated by the ruling class. Challenging because our rejection of these narrow horizons puts us into open conflict with the people who have the most power to ruin our lives. Trigo cites Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 11, quote, we are continually being handed over to death, end quote. There is something enduring in the situation of the first Christians of the Roman Empire. As long as there is history, there is conflict. And into this conflict, God sends us. In a world that demands obedience to its idols, God invites us to obedience to God's self alone. We can kneel neither before King Nebuchadnezzar, the state, nor before the golden calf, money. Our reign is the reign of God, and often our total membership in this new reign baffles and provokes the violence of those for whom there is nothing important in this universe aside from riches, honor, and pride. And our citizenship in the reign of God is not simply a passive affair. We are to build it up in collaboration with God. We are to be instruments of each other's salvation, servants of each other's vocation to life. God did not send Jesus to save us at the end of history, but in the middle of history. The life of Jesus in the Spirit flows into the life of the church in the Spirit. Further, the reign of God is not placed into the hands of the world leaders. Jesus does not entrust the kingdom to the Roman emperor, to the high priest, to the king of Israel. Jesus gives it as an inheritance to the wretched of the earth. Blessed are you, the poor, for the reign of God is yours. Trigo writes, quote, Is it not too scandalous that... Jesus sends us to save the people, us who are in so need of salvation, but only the poor with spirit. They who carry the sin of the world will be able to take away 
the sin of the world. Their lives are the resolution of the contradiction between the existence of God and that of sin. End quote. Yes, the rain belongs to the poor, and the revolutionary lives of poor people of faith are the greatest defense of God that can be given. Yet God does not only invite the oppressed to be faithful to God in an empire that commands us to bear the mark of the beast. God wishes for the conversion of the very people who give this command. Jesus goes out to meet these people. He looks at these people. He sees these people. He says to them, follow me. Many respond, I will follow you. So Jesus continues, To follow me is to abandon wealth. You cannot love both God and money. They have a decision to make. The following of Jesus does not happen simply on the spiritual plane. It demands a change, a very concrete change, the most concrete change, on the material plane. Will the rich person, like Zacchaeus, pay back those he has wronged, sell his possessions, give the money to the poor? Or will he go away sad, clinging to his wealth like the rich young man? Trigo declares that for the members of the ruling class, quote, the evangelical response is that a life of solidarity is better than manipulation and discrimination, end quote. I think here of the beginning of Terence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, when the mother says, quote, the nuns taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. It accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself. It gets others to please it too. It likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. End quote. And perhaps I would not necessarily choose the words nature and grace to describe the two options available in this fundamental life decision, but the content is essentially the same as Malik portrays it. Loving solidarity or selfish manipulation, graceful care for each other, or a ruthless domination of each other. Love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. To live with God when it is demanded of us to bear the mark of the beast is to reject the mark if we have yet to receive it, to erase this mark if we have already received it, to stop imposing the mark if we are the ones stamping it onto the skin of others. May God give us the courage and the discernment to do so and to do so well. The third question I wish to pursue in conjunction with Pedro Trigo's chapter is the relationship between humanity and nature. First, Trigo speaks of nature as the mother of humanity. As the children emerge from the womb of their mothers, human beings emerge from the matter of the earth. We are composed of earth. We grow out of it. We are absolutely dependent on it. Nature cares for us, nourishes us, gives life to us. There is no humanity without nature. Second, Trigo uses the image of the stepmother, and sorry to all the good stepmothers out there and for the sexist language. What he wishes to say is that nature is not only the mother that nourishes us, 
but also the stepmother that commands and controls us. We are subjected to the whims of nature, and the whims of nature can be harsh, cold, and inhumane. The laws of nature are often indifferent to human suffering, disease, disaster, death. At times, God calls us to humbly accept nature's commands. At times, God calls us to resist them. Our development of technology is in part an attempt to liberate ourselves from this cruel aspect of nature, medicine, agriculture, engineering. And we should not underappreciate the extent to which tech has helped free many of us from the compassionless rule of nature that would otherwise have killed us by now. Yet tech also leads to the third approach that Trigo takes to nature. Nature is also a victim of humanity. Nature strikes at us, but we strike at nature. We exploit resources, we pollute the planet, we are perpetrators of ecocide. We turn our backs on the mother who cares for us. We violently resist the stepmother who controls us. In our pursuit of liberation from nature, in the promotion of life and life in abundance, we destroy the very nature that allows us to live. In ravaging nature, we ravage ourselves. In light of these three types of relationships between humanity and nature, Trigo proposes two additional concepts to better illustrate the approach that humanity might take to the rest of creation. Dominion and created creator. By dominion, Trigo means that humanity does indeed have an exceptional directive role in the natural universe. When God created all things, God created human beings and human beings alone in God's image and likeness. The scripture's indication of this special quality is meant to set us apart from the rest of creation. Psalm 8 verses 3 to 9 capture it well. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with your glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, who is the absolute sovereign, makes us in such a way that we share in God's sovereignty. We are like all of creation and that we are made by God and dependent on God, yet we are different from all of creation in that we are made particularly in God's image and likeness and God has given to us, not to other creatures, dominion over the universe. That said, the real question is how we will exercise our dominion. We can use our dominion to destroy, to manipulate, to subjugate, or we can use our dominion to serve. We have the power to twist paradise into the absolute satisfaction of our pleasure, or we can tend paradise. In short, the best way to use our authority over nature is the way that God uses God's authority over us, humbly and lovingly. To continue by created creator, Trigo understands an interpretation of humanity as workers, the God who labored in the creation of the universe and in our creation, constitutes us as co-laborers, as co-creators. But what are we creating exactly? Foremost, we create ourselves. We work primarily so that we can live and live well. I think of Martha Harnecker's excellent quote that brings us back to this foundational truth. Quote, what the bourgeoisie does not understand or does not want to understand is that there are only two sources of wealth, 
nature, and human labor, and that without human labor, the potential wealth contained in nature would never be transformed into real wealth. End quote. Without human labor, there is no life, there is no wealth. Food does not magically enter the human body. People must produce it and transport it. Cell phones do not magically fall into our laps. People must get natural resources out of the earth, manipulate these resources into parts, assemble these parts, and transport the final product. Human beings work, and this work determines what human life looks like. The way that human beings work makes a radical difference in what humanity is historically. The community of hunter-gatherers, of shepherds, of farmers, of traders, or of industry, these are not the same. Further, a community of slaves is not the same as a community of owners. A community of serfs is not the same as a community of lords. A community of workers is not the same as a community of capitalists. The forces of production and the relations of production highly define humanity in a non-abstract, historically accurate way. My life as an academic is not the same as that of a miner. Marx knew this, and Trigo knows this. Work is the motor of history. Work defines history. Trigo calls our attention to a key dialectic in this human history of created creators of created creators. Quote, it is the disproportion between the development of the productive forces and the necessities of humanity that causes the sin of exclusive appropriation and marginalization, end quote. And he continues, quote, the time of necessity is not very elastic, and the time of work requires establishing hypotheses, proceeding by trial and error, fabricating tools, transporting supplies, having surpluses so one can consume during production, end quote. Here is the great tragedy and challenge of human beings in the material world. We have needs for air, water, food, shelter. Deprived of these things for a few minutes, a few days, a few months, depending on the case, we die. So how to organize the economy in such a way that everyone gets what they need to live before it's too late? Who has access to resources? Who has access to industrial equipment? Who has access to technology and education? Who has access to the products of human labor? These questions are not merely matters of equality but more basically matters of life and death. Even if small things go wrong in the processes of production, many people can and do die. We create and recreate each other by creating and recreating the world. What responsibility? God has given us dominion over life and death in creating us the way that we are as people who must work together and with the rest of nature in order to simply live. Labor, capital, economic models, these are not just ideology. They are first and foremost the reproduction of human life. We are fragile, yet dominant. We are created, yet creators. We are victims, yet perpetrators. We are different from God, yet called to communion with God. Different from one another, yet called to communion with one another. May we live in a way that dignifies the call we have received as creatures creating a new creation with the Creator. Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let's conclude with a prayer written by our author from today, Pedro Trigo. 
called We Sing to You in the Midst of the Gods. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We give thanks to you, Lord, and we sing to you in the midst of the gods. To you alone do we sing in the midst of the gods, for you alone are the God of deliverance. Our cities are populated with temples. Terrible and seductive gods ask us hourly for offerings and submission. Serve the company, they proclaim, and you will have a secure life. Be in fashion, and every season you will be born again. Join the party. You will be among the victors, and all doors will open for you. All the gods cry out, Come and receive the mark. When you are ours, you shall live of our life, and no one shall snatch you out of our hands. They tell lies, Lord, the life that the gods have is our life, which they have taken from us, that which their makers enjoy. We thank you, Lord, for you have uncovered for us the great lie. You alone, Lord, our shepherd, command respect. We know that you are truly great because you ask for nothing. You are worthy because you give nothing. You give us only love, the only possible gift among free beings. That is why your wrath revolts against the oppressors and you despise tyrants, but you draw the people to you to teach them. And your words are the light of life. We give thanks to you, O Lord, and we sing to you in the midst of the false gods. We are still a little afraid of them, but we are walking in the path of freedom. Do not abandon us in our fight. We know that you will not leave unfinished the work of your heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.